Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Columbus is growing. Here at the Dispatch, we wanted to take a step back and look at what all this growth means. This program will explore the future of Columbus and Central Ohio. This is What's Next. Hello and welcome. I'm Michelle Everhart. I'm the digital news editor here at the Dispatch, and we are back with another installment of the CBUS Next podcast. For those of you who are new here, we are taking the next several months to explore the future of Columbus. Today, we are talking about immigration. I'm here with reporter Encarnita Pyle, who examined how immigration is changing the face of Columbus. Um, Before we get to her, let's talk about some of the stats. In 1980, there were more than 28,000 people born outside the United States living in the greater Columbus area. By 2015, there were more than 138,000 foreign-born residents, nearly 7% of the population. By 2050, that number of foreign-born residents in Columbus is expected to jump to almost 300,000. And that's um, close to three times the current number. And uh, we're getting those numbers from local economist Bill Lafayette. And Carnita, from your reporting, what does the influx of immigrants mean to the area? Well, before I get to that uh, question, what I really wanted to say is one thing that I wanted to do with these stories is so often we have been focusing on the politics of immigration and really looked at some of the, the president's travel ban and some of those sorts of really controversial political issues, information, uh, immigration reform, those sorts of things. And what I wanted to do with these stories is really look at not the politics but the people and examine how the people are contributing to our community, especially and so often we're really just focused on the undocumented uh, segment of the population, which, uh, which experts believe, and it's hard to really tell because we don't know what those numbers are, but really um, it's expected that those fi- figures are a small, a very, very mm-hmm. small percentage of our overall Im- immigrants and refugees in our community, and that too often that takes away from a lot of the success stories. And we're not looking at the ways in which immigrants are adding to our cultural and economic and political fabric of the community. And so I really wanted to try to focus on some of those stories and show that, you know, um, we hear often that immigrants take away from our community, um, that they, you know, they're takers, they take more than they give. But there's studies after studies show that they actually contribute so much more than what they um, may take, and then often it might be those refugees who are new to a country, they're just getting started off here, that really, you know, they may not have the language skills, they may not know how to, how things operate in our country, um, that they may need a little bit of a hand up, they might need some assistance early on, but once, you know, they're just like everyone else, once they get in a job, once they get established with housing, once they've kind of figured things out, that, you know, they want what the rest of us want. They want to do well in their careers, they want to raise their families, they want their children to do better than even they are doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you said they might need a hand up. What are, what are some of the things that the city is doing now and what they hope to do to help these people? Yeah, you know, in fact, um, the city's 
the city's really focusing on really trying to establish and set the theme that we are a welcoming community. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, it's not the city, it's not the county that are providing the services, although they do provide, and often, you know, they have the means to provide some of the financial support, and, and there is some advocating that perhaps they could do more to provide more financial support, particularly as some of these groups might lose federal funds for the services they're providing. Um, but really, they're trying... Uh, the one thing that they're trying to do, in addition to just showing that they're a welcoming community, is to show some of the contributions and to try to dispel some of the stereotypes. But also, you know, there is more need for support. We, um, there's more need support when it comes to some of the job training and employment um, programs that are available. There is a need for providing more health care and health care education. I mean, just on every level, more need for interpreters and those kinds of services. Just anything to help individuals really, um, again, get established so that they're not only successful, but that they thrive and can continue to add to the community. And again, I mean, those are sorts of things that uh, we would help all of our residents Mm -hmm. with, not just those that are from other countries. And and then, but what we're forgetting, you know, too often, again, the conversations on those that, and I think it's often because we have a lot of refugees here, yes. um, and many of them are coming from war-torn countries, from conflict, persecution. They may have lived in refugee camps for decades. Um, some of them have lived their entire lives in refugee camps because their families, uh, I mean, these wars have gone on for 20-plus years. Um, and what we're forgetting, though, is we're bringing, there are a number of in, uh, individuals in the community that are, um, they have high, they have higher degrees. I mean, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they had wonderful jobs in their countries. But because of um, some inconsistencies in our education system, um, perhaps just a lack of recognition or awareness of the jobs and the skills available, perhaps they can also, I mean, there might be ways in which we can help those individuals better um, transform transfer to similar sorts of jobs here in the United States or not make it so difficult? I mean, do we really need to have, say, a brain surgeon working as a, you know, working in a hospitality industry, um, cleaning sheets Mm -hmm. and beds and doing those sorts of things? And often that's what happens with many of these individuals when they first come to the country until they can try to figure things out and see if there is a way that perhaps they can get, uh, do the sorts of jobs they had been doing in their own countries. So what kind of services are there for people who are coming here and, and trying to resettle and, and trying to trying to become part of the community and, and, and work in those areas that they used to work in their own country? Like you say, that brain surgeon, instead of putting them in hospitality, what, what is there out there for out there for those people. Yeah, there's not a lot. I mean, for, for our new refugees, our newcomers to the country, and the refugees, they've mm-hmm. gotten, their, that's a, an actual title, mm-hmm. and they've been invited by mm-hmm. our, our federal government to come into the United States. Um, they, they do get resettled by groups called resettlement agencies, and um, they essentially provide them with housing and try to uh, get them and uh, provide job training programs, and they link them to community service groups that can provide uh, uh, they help them with health care and those sorts of things. And there are a number of nonprofit groups and community service groups that provide additional services. Um, but I think one of the real areas that we, we aren't doing enough in is particularly for those those individuals that have those, those high-tech, those high-demand jobs or had been in those high-tech, high-demand jobs or scientific jobs. There isn't a lot to help them. I know a lot of the, the uh, Columbus State Community College Ohio State, other institutions and colleges are trying to figure out how best to 
do that, but it's been tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think anyone's come up with a really good solution as to, not only here in Columbus, but across the country, as to how do we help these individuals do jobs that are, appreciate their their experiences and do the jobs that they can do. Are there a way to um, help them get the credentials they need more quickly or get them through, perhaps don't require them to do another four-year degree, but perhaps um, take some additional college courses or do an accelerated program or those sorts of things. And I think we're really lacking in that area. Okay. I want to back up just a little bit. You touched on this, but I want to make sure that we're very clear for our listeners. What is the difference between someone who's undocumented, someone who's a refugee, and someone who 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 is an immigrant? What, can you explain the differences between those? I can, although I'm not going to be able to do I mean, this is not a legal explanation sure. by any means. Mm-hmm. I mean, refugees uh, tend to be individuals that, again, they have been invited into our country. Usually they're from war-torn or they've, they've suffered religious Persecution. There's a whole list mm-hmm. of requirements that um, would um, uh, qualify someone to uh, be considered a refugee, and it's a very difficult process. Again, this is a very hot topic as to whether the United States is doing enough to politically or uh, to, to vet to mm-hmm. vet. Uh, these individuals before they come into the country because a number of them are coming from um, uh, Muslim countries and uh, certainly I think most people are aware of the the travel ban um, that president uh, the president has forward and that is winning its way through the courts and he has uh, certainly made some um, headway on but uh, those individuals I mean there's a vetting process and they get serv- once they come to the United States they get services for a very they get federally paid for services for a very limited amount of time, and then they're required to be self-sufficient and live on their own, and they, they don't, you know, they're not getting welfare, those sorts of services. Um, undocumented immigrants are those individuals who come into the country illegally. Um, uh, the, the, there's a big, again, there's a lot of controversy over whether these individuals are receiving services that they shouldn't be. Um, most often, they don't qualify for the sorts of things that people think they would because they aren't able to prove who they are. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't ways in which uh, individuals might try to circumvent um, the, the the system. And, and then uh, we have in, in, individuals also that come to the country. And then, of course, we just have immigrants that uh, come to the country. They might come on a visa program. Um, they might be sponsored because of a family member that they have here. I mean, there are a variety of ways in which individuals can come to the United States. Okay. Thank you for, for clearing that up. Um, there are some people out there who who don't think that we should be helping immigrants and refugees resettle here. What is the benefit to the area? Um, well, economically, I mean, certainly there's a huge benefit. There have been a number of studies that show, I mean, if we just look at our refugee community, we had a recent study that uh, here in Columbus that showed that, you know, there was a $2 million benefit of having just refugees. And again, that's not the entire population of our foreign-born folks here in the United States. Um, But beyond just the financial, I mean, we often focus on the financial because that's a real tangible sort of thing. But, you know, they're adding to the fabric of the community. We're talking about new languages, new foods, new cultures, new experiences. I mean, I, I think all of these things are things that have always helped make the United States great. It's something that many of us like to pride um, and say, you know, it's, it's something that uh, is really unique to the United States. Um, and so a lot of individuals say that 
why would we want to not continue to have that be a part of our country? Um, I, I think uh, I think individuals that are um, supporting um, continued immigration and continue, continued acceptance of individuals from from other countries are saying that hey, they're not they're not saying that they're against. They don't want people to break the law. They're not against safety concerns, but they think there are ways to deal with those issues, but still. Um, you know, be a, a mosaic or a melting pot. You know, be a country that thrives on having individuals from all over the world. Okay. Now, speaking about having people from all over the world, um, one of the areas you touched on was the Morris Road area in, in northeast Columbus. Tell us how that area has been improved um, because of an, an influx of immigrants. Yeah, in fact, Morse Road is an area, certainly when the Northland Mall and several of the other sh shopping centers lost a lot of their retail to the suburbs. It happened in the early t uh, 2000s. It's, it's not unique just to the north side. It's something that's happened throughout our, our kind of our central core of mm -hmm. the city of Columbus. Um, you know, it was vacant. A lot of those storefronts were vacant. A lot of that property was vacant. There were um, a, a, a crime in the area went up. And, you know, some people say that, you know, they're still not happy with how the area looks today. But, you know, if you if you haven't been to Morse Road, you probably ought to take a drive down there because it's really interesting. It's very fascinating. And it's really become kind of this really thriving um, business community of immigrants. I mean, there are other businesses as well, but there is just a plethora of immigrant-owned restaurants and barber shops and businesses of all sorts. There are international markets and a lot of uh, communities of Bhutanese and um, they're Latinos and from all over the world, not just Mexico, mm -hmm. um, and Somalis and other Africans. I mean, again, I think too often people think that we only have Somalis in, in the Columbus area, and we've got people from all over Africa. And um, there's just just if if someone were to compare it to say Hamilton Road or Bryce Road, go down those roads, and they're becoming really kind of like ghost towns. Mm -hmm. And that's what Morse Road used to be, and would still be probably if not for immigrants. And that's not me saying that. I mean, that's a lot of our our, our economists, our city le leaders, our some of our community leaders. You know, most of this I'm not per, you know I'm not perpetuating. These are my opinions by any means. These are people in the community saying that this is what's happening in Columbus. And, you know, whether we like it or not, it's just the reality. Absolutely. Um, one of the stories you wrote for the CBS Next series was about um, Ama Santos, and I love this story. So can you, can you tell us about the success that she has found here? Yeah, and in fact, um, before I talk about her success, what I loved about this story is, again, I really wanted to just look at the immigrants. And in talking to many of the families, I noticed that, you know, again, like everyone else, they were motivated primarily because they wanted to do well for their children. And they wanted their children to have a better life than they did. And Alma's story was just, it's fantastic. I love the story. Her grandfather came to the United States um, as uh, under the Bracero program. And that was a program that allowed millions of mostly Mexicans to come work on, uh, to be temporary farm workers, essentially. And so uh, her parents were allowed to come as well. And um, unfortunately, when she was a young child, 
child, they got divorced. And so she and her mother and her two siblings ended up being homeless. And they lived in shelters and they lived on the streets and, and even lived in the shed uh, behind a friend's house for, for a long time. And wow. they used pantries and, and soup kitchens and those sorts of things. So had some really tough times. Um, throughout it all, they continued to um, pick crops. I mean, they were migrant farm workers just like their their relatives before them and she was doing she was going to school her mother always put a premium on on the children had to go to school but after school during summer vacation during breaks she was always working on on the farm fields living in the migrant camps um, with a bunch of men essentially single men mostly um, and really tough conditions I mean making less than $20 an hour and she knew that that was not a life that she wanted for herself as a young person as a teenager and uh, an uncle lived in Columbus and he and his family had come to visit and she went home with them and came to this area and learned that gosh there are so many jobs here this is just a thriving wonderful community and just lots of opportunities if you want to work and you want to succeed the opportunities are here so she came out worked two jobs brought her mother out and her mother um, also brought uh, her niece out um, just a little baby Um, And her mom also started working selling tamales, of all things, with with a group of ladies. And she wanted to give back for all that she had given. She she had never, uh, beyond the soup kitchens and the shelters, had never used any public services. And she knew that there were others here experiencing tough times like they had. So she started a food pantry out of the back of her minivan and would go to the Lincoln Park West Apartments, which are no longer, uh, they're no longer apartment complexes on, on the far west side, and she would hand out food from her, uh-huh. and she would make all her kids help her do this. And it caught the notice of Catholic Social Services that decided to create an actual food bank out in the area in her honor, and to continue that work. And ironically, Alma runs, the, uh, she's like a program coordinator for that program um, today. And then her children have received a lot of success, including that one, that three-year-old uh, niece that she has since adopted, who is going to Ohio Dominican and is doing really, really well in college. And, um, you know, they'll never have to pick fruits and vegetables and work in the hot sun under deplorable conditions like um, her parents had. And, and that was the, I just wanted to show that too often we hear that these individuals aren't assimilating. Well, it you know they are. It just might take a few generations of family members to do so, and and we might not notice it because of that. But it is happening. That's a really neat story. Tell me one thing that surprised you most while while working on these stories. Uh, yeah, probably, and I write quite a bit about immigrants and refugees, mm-hmm. so I, I don't think I was uh, surprised by a lot of the circumstances. But what's really interesting, though, is um, a, a number of individuals that I talked with, you know, they were a little hesitant at first to talk because... The, the, the climate has been so politically charged, and they feel as though they've, um, you know, that people hate them um, and don't understand them and don't want to understand them. But what was interesting, despite all of that, was the hope that so many people expressed and the um, the gratitude for being allowed to live in the United States 
and and um, the opportunities that they saw for the future and how they were just so resilient and really thought that, you know, this too shall pass. And, you know, despite the challenges, it's, you know, in many ways their lives are still better off than where they were, and they appreciated that. And I think, um, and many of them said that if only I, I could, build a relationship and talk to more individuals. And if perhaps they knew me, um, they might view me a little bit differently. And Carnita, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing the stories with us. Next week, we're going to be back um, with more CBUS Next stories. This time, we're going to be talking about your feedback. Um, we've been asking people what what they think Columbus is going to look like in 20 years. And um, it, you guys have some really interesting ideas, and a lot of it is focused on transportation. And i got to tell you, a lot of you want a train system here in Columbus. So we're going to be exploring those um, ideas and what the possibilities are with that. You can join the conversation by emailing us at cbusnext at dispatch.com. You can use the hashtag cbusnext, or you can go to cbusnext.com and let us know what your thoughts are. Thanks for joining us. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.